0: You know, I've been around a long time. I know how hard this is.
1: From the political science
0: department at UW-Madison. Am
1: I exasperated?
0: Absolutely, I'm exasperated.
1: I'm Adam Wigger.
0: This country's gone through tough times before, and we're going to do it again. And I'm Sam Beisman. This is more work than in my previous life.
2: I thought it would be easier.
1: And this is 1050 Baskin.
3: Today on 1050 Bascom, we are excited to welcome back Laura Albert, Professor of Industrial and Systems Engineering at UW-Madison. Professor Albert first joined us last summer to talk about COVID-19 testing and tracing, and the return of Major League Baseball. Ten months later, COVID remains a global and national crisis, though we now have effective vaccines and, in the U.S., case numbers are declining in a seemingly hopeful way. We wanted to check back in with Professor Albert for her insights on what we've learned about the virus, what the early models got right and got wrong, and the impact of vaccines in the U.S. and around the world. We also hope to get Professor Albert's take on what a return to something normal might look like, and when we might see that happen. So without further ado, thank you so much for being on the podcast again, Professor Albert.
4: You're welcome. Thanks for having me.
1: Let's jump right in, and we can start broad. Creating data models for COVID was a challenge from the start, and as the months have gone on, even the CDC continues to have what looks to the average reader to be competing models. There were heated debates about a major fourth surge this spring, which, you know, all things considered, didn't seem to happen. Can you talk a little bit about the challenges of modeling this virus, especially as time has gone on, and why there's so many different models?
4: Yeah, first of all, I will say forecasting is really hard. If it weren't, I would fill out a perfect bracket every March when there's the tournament, I'd win the lottery, all sorts of good things would happen. So the further we look out into the future, the harder it is to predict the future, even if we kind of understand the system pretty well, and the system in this case being how the virus is spread. And it depends on a lot of factors, some of which we can control, some of them we can't. And then there are the, the things that we just can't really control or know. But so let's look at these forecasting models. They all depend on some model of human behavior and making some assumptions. And a lot of times we see that human behavior will change in ways that maybe we haven't predicted before creating a model. And that's one of the challenges. So for example, if you actually look at some human behavior, like travel before March of 2020 before things were shut down people really reduced their travel on their own before being told you're on lockdown and those are you know that's one of the things that can affect the forecasting models that these slight changes or large changes in behavior Uh, but if you actually looked at some of the forecasting models early on in the pandemic were they that bad so what happens in forecasting it's good to have competing models and you have different predictions or uh, forecasts of the future, and the reality will be somewhere in the mix. And it's usually good to have competing models with different answers so you can be prepared for anything that can happen in the range of plausibility a lot of the models actually helped us really achieve that. One of the models said there would be about 2 million deaths at the end of 2020 if we did, did nothing. There were less than 2 million deaths, but we also didn't do nothing. We had a pretty robust national plan as well as some really good state and local responses to the pandemic. And there, there were about 580,000 deaths by the, I think in February. So much lower than the 2 million count. Although that's way too many deaths, I would say, as well. And so some of these these forecasting models just help us be prepared for the next steps, um, sometimes the next more immediate steps, and also help us think about some longer term plans.
0: You mentioned March Madness in your answer to that last question. So I think we're about to set a 1050 Bascom record by referencing sports twice on the podcast, because I'm going to ask you to do some monday morning quarterbacking on these models we're curious as to your perspective on what experts like you learned over the past year about these models what were some things that people got right or wrong and how do you think this, this can inform constructing models moving forward
4: So it's not just the creating of models, it's also the disseminating of the the models and that scientific information to the public. And in this past year, I think one of the things scientists did really well is engage with the public. I've seen my colleagues here at UW Madison in a number of disciplines, um, but also my colleagues throughout the country and the world engage with the public in record numbers, we're talking to newspapers, we're on the news, and piece by piece and bit by bit, we're able to explain the scientific principles to the public. It's been awesome that the public wants the scientific information. I am so jazzed about this and I hope it's a trend that continues far into the uh, the future. One of the things I've often done is not just communicate the results of the models, but what we should do with it. What does it tell us about managing risk in terms of policy, but also individually? And this has really helped um, a lot of people figure out what to do and what to worry about and maybe what not to worry about. There's a lot that's been going on this past year. So that's one thing that I think the science uh, got right. The other thing was uh, the vaccine development and rollout. The vaccines are such a huge win. They work so much better than we anticipated a year ago. And they're available so much earlier than we anticipated. The rollout in the U.S. has been um, not perfect, but it's been really great. The initial rollout was definitely rocky and a lot of steps. But admittedly, the vaccines were introduced right before a major holiday, Christmas, which is not a good time to start a big vaccination campaign. A lot of the healthcare staffs going on vacation, etc. Patients don't really want want a vaccine at that time necessarily if they have some things going on. But we saw most states and and uh, public health agencies learn from those initial steps and and, uh, administer the vaccine. What's called the last mile delivery is actually getting the shots in the arm is really hard and it takes a lot of things going right for that to happen. So that's a real major achievement in the past year. I'll be honest, I'll talk about some of the missteps. One of the missteps was a very slow understanding in terms of how the virus spread. In March of last year, we were all getting lessons on how to wash our hands. I'm a, I'm a fan of hand washing, to be honest. But we've learned is that the virus is really spread through particles, um, aerosol particles. And it wasn't until uh, the summer, I believe, that that was really starting to gain traction. Early on, it was more the large particles, which can be easily blocked with face masks. The aerosol particles are also blocked by face masks, but not nearly as well. That's why we need to to uh, pay attention to ventilation. So getting the word out was pretty slow. The CDC in the past month has accepted that and it is now recommending most mitigations to focus on these aerosol particles. And we're finally freeing up a lot of people from disinfecting surfaces and now focusing on aerosol particles. And that will make a difference actually. So I wish that happened a little bit uh, quicker. Um, As well, as good as science communication has been, we have Learn that we probably could have communicated a little bit better, especially giving timeframes for how much we're asking of people and for how long. I think it's really hard. I run races. This is another sports analogy for you if you're looking for one. And <laughs> you really want to know how long the race is and how much is is left to go. If you don't really know where the finish line is, that, that can be really hard. And running is... Races is way less fun in that case. And we've definitely seen a lot of pandemic fatigue in the the past year, and it would be nice to have more tools to help the public with uh, fatigue.
3: Yeah, so maybe we can track back to some specifics you talked about last time we had you on the podcast in terms of the virus and professional sports like Major League Baseball. Many said football would be impossible, but it worked. Question mark. And college and national sports worked more generally. What is your take on how major sports organizations have handled COVID better or worse than you expected? What are your thoughts?
4: Well, I'd say better, but I did expect them to handle the virus pretty well. I was optimistic about sports returning. I was not... Didn't have much company in that, uh, but I was very optimistic about baseball and soccer returning in particular because those plays, sports are, are played out, outside. Slightly less so about football, mainly because the teams are, are so big and they do have to congregate inside and in locker rooms and such. But what I was excited about was um, just the resources professional sports have. You know, they really could throw all the resources behind the risk mitigations and at the time, we didn't really understand the virus so well last summer. So, you know, they they would have to prepare for a lot more with a lab, uh, without a great understanding of the actual science. But they had the mitigations to take the proper action to, and to do them consistently. And I was really excited about the opportunity for the public to actually learn from some of those risk mitigations. Like, it would have been great to know, like, hey, the ventilation in the locker room is critical. When it's not quite up to par, there's uh, virus transmission—that would have been really um, useful—and also demonstrated a path towards normality. Uh, here we are a year later, and we're still thinking about going back to normality. Sports has been a little inspirational in that regard, and it tells us that if we're willing to to you know, take on these mitigations and do them consistently. It's possible to have some normality, but sports haven't been the same as they were before. There aren't bans in the stands by and large. And there have even been some rule changes for public safety and public health, which has been a good thing. So I was optimistic about that. And of course, we saw some additional challenges with college sports and the student athletes have to go to class and have other priorities and they aren't quite the resources. Uh, but you know, for the most part, they worked pretty well. I was a little bit more skeptical about college sports. Um, and in fairness, uh, one team in the men's tournament did have to forfeit due to a COVID outbreak right before the tournament, uh, and that's unfortunate.
2: I hate to move away from all of the great sports analogies here, but on a similar note, as we're talking about college and school in general, what have we learned about the virus and education in schools in general? And do you think, based on the data we have right now, that the fall semester would be more normal, quote-unquote?
4: That's a great question. I've been following reopening schools, especially K-12 schools, very closely Um, there have been some data from throughout the world because some schools were open or reopened a year ago i'll I'll mention a couple of things and it's worth pointing out that just yesterday the fda approved or the cdc approved the, the vaccine the pfizer vaccine for 12 to 15 year olds so that's a bit of a game changer and that will be a good thing going forward i have a lot of optimism about the schools In part because when schools are open and there's distance and they wear masks during the day, things look pretty reasonable in schools. Earlier, I mentioned the slow acceptance of The virus transmitting mostly through aerosol particles. A lot of the playbooks that schools have used this past year ignores the particle transmission, the main mode of transmission and focuses on cleaning the surfaces and moving forward, I think the school, schools will be able to upgrade their ventilation systems over the summer, make sure they're really uh, following all the OSHA guidelines by bringing in enough air, cracking windows if they need to, having the better air filters in schools that will really reduce the risk in the schools. So that will be a you know big improvement going forward vaccines is also a big improvement going forward about 60 percent of 16 and 17 year olds in dane county have at least one shot of the vaccine right so that that's going to drastically reduce the risk what might increase the risk is the recommendation to go from six feet to three feet of physical distance in schools that does increase the risk a little bit but now with 12 to you know 18 year olds in school Possibly having many of them vaccinated, that will be important. But going from a six, six feet to three feet is really the path toward normality. Uh, when school children have to maintain six feet of distance, it's not possible in most schools to have a full classroom in the classroom. and So that was a barrier to normality. So I'm optimistic about the fall, just given that we know so much more and that school reopenings have gone mostly pretty well this past year the and with additional vaccines there's a lot to look forward to
1: on this topic of more and more of the population in the United States getting vaccinated there have been swirling reports about herd immunity and just what that means and if it's attainable like the main Crux of this recently has been a New York Times article that said that reaching herd immunity may not even be within the cards. Can you talk us through this debate and maybe even give us a working definition of herd immunity in this context?
4: Yeah, as an engineer, I am not a public health expert. I read that article and was initially a little bummed out. And then I realized that as a non-public health expert, I had been using the term herd immunity wrong. And herd immunity is mostly about kind of eradicating the virus. And we have been talking mostly using the term to uh, refer to reducing the level of virus to really low levels, having really low levels of transmission so mostly uh, the public health experts didn't change their tune they were telling us the same thing all along it was just we weren't all on the same page and the article reflected that we can and should get the virus transmission down to low levels we won't the vaccine won't eradicate the virus that causes COVID-19 but it makes it a virus that we can live with and you know, for the past year, I've been talking about how the virus is going to be around for years, if not decades, even with a vaccine. And so those are really consistent messages. It's just we've been inconsistent with the use of the term herd immunity. So along this path to herd immunity, and I hope we get there in my lifetime, but we'll have some normality, we'll get the transmission down to really low levels, and we'll reach a number of milestones that will make us feel normal. And hopefully we'll start to have more of those milestones in the very near future as we're reaching high, high enough levels of uh, vaccination in the United States so that transmission will really come pretty far down.
0: What does that mean for policy solutions in terms of continuing to combat the COVID pri- crisis? Like as we, in general, as a society, come to accept what achieving herd immunity really, really means, how do you think that might shift the way state or even national lawmakers respond now and in the future to COVID?
4: That's a great question. Returning to normality will be a process, and there'll be milestones along the way. A lot of the policy needs to focus on the more immediate future, the next few months, or the next year. When... We introduced the car to society. We introduced a lot of risk. The death rates with driving were through the roof. And eventually, this society sort of absorbed that risk and also introduced seatbelts and risk mitigations to reduce that risk. But now we don't really think about the additional risk that we have in our lives because we drive. We just sort of accept that as a day-to-day risk that we have to deal with. And probably the same thing will happen with the virus. It will get down to very low levels and we'll probably get booster shots on a, on a periodic basis. But there'll be some risk and hopefully it'll be low. <laughs> the question is, you know, what does it look like to get to that, to that point? And there does need to be policy. I like some encouragement to have some normality to look forward to and putting a time frame on that. We've seen some policy here at UW and elsewhere um, that gives us a, a time frame for that, such as if you get vaccinated, you know, no longer have to get required weekly testing. Maybe if the virus transmission rate goes low enough, um, you know, we no longer have to wear face masks in certain places. And those would be helpful to get along to that point. And as a human being, I want to adjust to the possibility uh, the changes and the milestones, and we'll probably slowly return to normality as well.
3: States opening up, despite their cases rising, states being more restrictive, opening up. Has this trend towards trying to achieve normalcy been based on predictive models, politics, what we've learned about the virus, or is it just pandemic fatigue?
4: Probably all of the above. I'm much more comfortable with the math than the politics, to be honest. Um, and the, the math does tell us to be pretty cautious about opening up because every new case that gets transmitted leads to more cases that are transmitted. And then it takes longer and longer um, to reach that low level if you start from a higher uh, caseload. And this is something that we've discussed a lot. Uh, Dr. Fauci has talked about that, of just being able to bring the caseload down. And you know, a lot of state and local policies haven't always really followed the math. So probably it's more politics. But it's important to for us to keep talking about uh, about this. And there is a lot of interest in listening to experts, even in this state and in many states and localities and following the guidelines. So you may be surprised, even though it seems like a lot of politics, if you call your local school board, they're hearing from a lot of scientists as well.
2: Maybe this is a lot of overlap with what we already talked about in terms of herd immunity, but there is a small group of people, uh, forecasters, health experts, and just people in general, demanding hashtag zero COVID. And That goal doesn't necessarily seem realistic based on what we've talked about, but there's definitely some people, especially on Twitter and in local debates about school opening, that seem to be really adamant about having that goal. Do you have a take on some of your fellow modelers digging in their heels to this idea as a possibility?
4: You know, this trend hasn't really gotten big in my communities, which maybe tells you something. The idea of, you know, hashtag zero COVID sounds great. I mean, sign me up. When I've looked into it, it seems to conflate two issues. One is reducing the transmission to zero or almost zero. And the second is eradicating the virus. They seem like they're similar mathematically, but they're really different. They're conflated. I will say, though, as an engineer who studies risk management, I am super suspicious when anyone promises to reduce risk to zero. You almost certainly can't do it. And as a society, we almost never want to pay the cost, which is usually cost to our liberty, (laughs) as well as kind of actual dollar amounts to really eliminate all risks. But usually, we can find cost-effective ways to really manage risks and reduce them to really low levels. And I think that will be achievable even in the short term.
0: So then, speaking of kind of this short term, and as we're moving towards continuing to fight this thing, it seems like one of the biggest obstacles in our way right now as a country and society is vaccine hesitancy. So, what do you think both the public and private sector could be doing to address this hesitancy and get over and past this obstacle?
4: Yeah. So, first of all, I will just point out that there is so much variety and heterogeneity in the population, especially when it comes to vaccines. And when we really are talking about vaccinating a large proportion of our country, we're going to have to encounter a lot of different attitudes of people willing to be able to get the virus on some level and so sometimes the vaccine have this hesitancy term conflates and combines a few different groups of people some uh, people really do not want to get the vaccine and there's been reports of a small proportion of Americans who just won't get it others are kind of wait and see and then there's a third category that is willing to get the vaccine but they're just hard to vaccinate and this might be because they work shifts or they don't have a car and it's not easy for them to make it uh make an appointment or they just don't have reliable internet and haven't figured out how to navigate the system and make an appointment which is mostly done online and you know we can always vaccinate the easy to vaccinate people up front and we saw that people were lining up and making appointments and and showing up um, to get vaccinated and then we'll have a a place here where we really need to kind of redesign our vaccine systems to reach people that are willing to get the vaccine but are harder to vaccinate so, every time we vaccinate somebody, the next person's going to be slightly harder to vaccinate. And it seems kind of daunting, but over time, hopefully, we'll get enough people vaccinated that way. And there's a couple things that the um, public and private sector can do to encourage vaccination. One is make it really easy to get the vaccine. This is something we can do in the short term. We've seen vaccine um, pop up clinics, we've seen walking in. I've talked to a lot of people that just, you know, do not like making appointments. I've talked to people that will not make an appointment to get their hair cut. They will always find places where you can walk in and, and I'm like, well, that's so inefficient. What do you feel you have to wait? And they'll wait. You know, it's just their preferences are different than mine. So that's something that uh, now we're seeing the walk in clinics that removes a barrier for some people. So all those things will make a difference. We also can send some vaccines to people, so at two certain locations, and maybe have them get vaccinated where they work or where they live. That would be great. The other thing we need to do, and this is for the public health officials, is to build trust. We need to continue to talk about the risks of the vaccine and be honest. When the Johnson & Johnson vaccine paused to discuss some of these risks, even if they were very rare with the blood clots, and ended up being kind of a good thing. And I, and I hope that it ends up being a positive for vaccination, that there were some people money to get vaccinated. This is a policy recommendation. So West Virginia is giving a $100 savings bond to everyone 16 to 35 years old who chooses a vaccine. And you could think about what the cost of society would be if they skipped the vaccine. It's probably worth it. And so there, some people are getting the vaccine to get free donuts. That's also an option. I just go with the cold, hard cash. And in terms of the private sector, uh, we're seeing some incentives. Uh, Some employers have been paying their employees to get vaccinated, giving them several hours, paying them for the day, and they can go get a vaccine appointment, or they might get an extra vacation day. So there might be um, some options to do that. So just to be able to work more comfortably, this can be good.
3: There's been a decent bit of discussion and speculation on what. Will need to be vaccinated for what would require vaccination, you know, to take part in. Um, that leads us to the thought of travel. So, what is a vaccine passport?
4: A vaccine passport is not really a passport, although they will be useful for travel, and I'll get to that. But it's really a credential for showing that you've been vaccinated, it's similar to a driver's license. Okay, and I want to separate the idea of having the credential from using the credential. So we have a driver's license and we need that to drive, but we also have to show it sometimes to buy liquor or to actually to fly. And so there's those two issues going on separately. Those little paper cards that we get to when we get vaccinated are just kind of for us. They're really not like proof of vaccine in a very trustworthy sense and that they could be easily forged. Okay, so why is this so important for travel? Well, this is a worldwide pandemic. There are a lot of travel restrictions in place and they were in place before there were vaccines to fly to many countries. First of all, you couldn't always go on like a tourist visa this past year. Um, But generally you needed to do a COVID test about three days before flying and you need to get a COVID test before entering the United States and then you are required to quarantine. And so this sort of varies by country. And this may be on top of other travel restrictions and visa restrictions. Um, So you need a malaria vaccine to travel to certain parts of the world. Okay, so if we really want to control the risk of the virus, we want to be able to (laughs) require that travelers do something that isn't so easily forged. And the COVID tests were pretty easily forged. And then they don't really actually reduce the risk. And then we have these new very aggressive strains of the virus that are spreading Uh, more quickly throughout the world and the travel restrictions really just slow down the spread of those aggressive new strains. The vaccine is so effective. It's the by far the best tool we have to control the virus. It's uh and now there are all these uh ways that we'll want to, to use it to control the virus. So it's kind of a good problem to have and that now we're talking about vaccine passports. But it's just a credential that we can trust that says somebody is really vaccinated. Here in Wisconsin, we have a vaccine credential. It's called the Wisconsin Immunization Registry and you can download all your immunizations. I grew up in Illinois. And my childhood vaccines are not in there. So it's actually really difficult to prove that I've had my childhood immunizations, which I've actually needed to travel to um, certain countries. And it, it was really hard to track those down and I couldn't track them down. And I had to go to my doctor's office and get tested. They drew blood, I had to get some booster shots. I would have loved to have a credential that I could have shown in that case. And so they're really convenient to use and you want to be able to show up, you want this credential to be honored by different countries. Um, and so this is why it needs to be trusted and approved really in for international use. And that will be a, a tool for us to resume some normality. Sometimes the vaccine passports are something that could be used uh, more locally. So some employers or universities that are required requiring vaccination could use a vaccine passport, but they might also look at printouts of health records. You know, so just because we have a vaccine passport doesn't mean it tells us exactly how we're going to use it. That's sort of open for debate. In Israel, they need to show that they've been vaccinated to go to the gym, for example, for needing to show that we've been vaccinated to do everyday events. But they will, they will definitely be useful as we resume travel. Also, another challenge with vaccination and being able to show our records, we have very piecemeal records, health records in this country, and many college students got their first shot of a vaccine, and then will go home out of state to another clinic and get their second shot. And if they go to Rutgers and they need to prove that they've been vaccinated, having these two different multiple sets of health records could be hard to show that they've been vaccinated. And so a a vaccine passport can really just help reduce some of the red tape and and make the process of showing that we've been vaccinated easier. I like efficiency, so I think that the passport could be good. And uh, a number of folks in the private sector who are trying to develop a standard for this are ensuring that there will be equity for this. So everybody who's been vaccinated should be able to get one. If that doesn't happen, it probably won't be so useful. And it's true. International travel is a big motivator for these passports.
2: So speaking of international travel, some people are thinking about or actively resuming international travel to the extent that they can. What does that outlook for travel look like for to you? And a lot of students are kind of looking forward to future study abroad and spring 2022 international traveling experiences. Do you think that's realistic?
4: Yeah, there's a couple questions there. And one is what's the timeframe for international travel? I think it's a process right now. I think domestic travel is something that, you know, we can readily enjoy this year. The, the virus is really a global virus and much of the world hasn't had access to vaccines. Yet. And so travel does increase the risk. International travel increases the risk of bringing back some of the riskier variants, especially if we haven't been vaccinated. Um, And that will just lead to a longer time to have like worldwide control of the virus. So it's not, you know, whether we should travel, yes or no. It's more like how we should travel this year that we should pay attention to. Having said that, vaccination really does reduce the risks and is a good thing and is our process for returning to normal. I think study abroad will happen next year. I hope it does. It's more of a study option. And I, I hope students can enjoy some of that. I was on a Fulbright and had to come back early when the pandemic broke out. So my heart kind of breaks for all the students who had their study abroad interrupted. And I hope they get a chance to, to take advantage of that.
1: As we're talking about international travel and about international things in general, lately, there has been a lot of conversations surrounding vaccine inequality in unequal access to vaccinations on an interna- on an international scale. What are some of the things that the United States can or is doing or can do or is already doing to help combat vaccine inequality around the world?
4: Yes, controlling the virus is an effort, a massive effort across time and space and across international borders. The virus doesn't really care about our national borders. It's a truly global pandemic. And vaccine nationalism uh, is something that ultimately doesn't really make sense. The goal isn't really just to get the United States vaccinated. The, the goal is to really control the virus throughout the world to, to make sure everybody has access to a vaccine. And that's really the only way we're going to control it. When I've talked about this, it's sometimes hard to make that point across because a lot of times we don't really leave our houses these days, but we've seen these new variants emerge from throughout the world because the virus is, so has been surging in so many places, and they will continue to emerge. There was a lot of concern about the UK variant this past year, and you know that's just the first of many aggressive new variants that we will be dealing with in the coming years. So it's really important for us to think globally in terms of virus control. In terms of the U.S., we need to share our vaccines uh, with the world, uh, especially with the developing world. We have need to share vaccines, but also the ability to make vaccines um, so we can support the manufacturing sites and then offer ingredients for the vaccines. And this will help speed up the time frame for controlling the virus. The situation in India is truly heartbreaking. And so there's a lot of aid that just needs to be offered in the short term, Uh, especially things like ventilators could make a, a real difference for some of those outbreaks.
0: When you say share vaccines, do you mean waiving patent requirements or is that outside the purview of kind of what you're recommending here?
4: I'm not an expert on patent requirements, but I think that's fair game. But there are probably going to be unused vaccines in the U.S. that we could share before they expire.
0: And as we're kind of starting to come to the end of our conversation today, we'd like to ask you if there's anything that we should have talked about today. Is there anything that we haven't covered so far in our conversation that you feel like our listeners really need to hear about this topic so that they have the full picture on it or just anything maybe that we've talked about that you'd like to emphasize?
4: One thing that I'd like to emphasize is that normality is on the horizon, but it's not like flipping a switch. It's going to be a process. There are certainly going to be things that annoy us all individually, but hopefully the situation doesn't last. Our experience this summer is not going to be what we experience in future summers, so there's a lot to look forward to. Just be patient, and we will get there.
2: And on that note, we've been asking all of our guests, because it's been such a stressful and kind of dark year on many fronts on top of a global pandemic. What is something that makes you hopeful?
4: The vaccine makes me extremely hopeful, <laughs> I will say. That's been a good thing. And I saw my mother on Mother's Day, and I gave her a hug for the first time in a long time. And that that really lifted my spirits. That felt really good.
2: That's so great to hear and so wholesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Again, Professor Albert, we'd love to have you back sometime soon.
4: Thanks again. It was a pleasure talking to you all.
1: For more information about 1050 Bascom, visit polisci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. 1050 Bascom is edited by Adam Wigger and Sam Beisman, produced by Amy Gangle,
2: and recorded remotely for now.